Well, Merry Christmas. Almost Merry Christmas. Let's see if I can get this in the right spot here. All right, so this morning we're talking about joy. There we go. So we lit the joy candle. I've never known why the joy candle is pink and the rest of them are not. I love it. If anybody knows, come tell me later. But the joy candle is pink. Many of you probably this morning resonate with joy as you step in this room. Like uh, something is going really well. Maybe you're uh, rejoicing a new pregnancy or an upcoming birth. That's good. Maybe you're rejoicing a promotion at work or the fact that you still have a job next year. Maybe you're rejoicing the warmth and excitement of a new friendship or romantic relationship. Those are good. Maybe you're just excited because this year you know you're going to be with friends and family and you've got the tree up and it's nice and warm and the cinnamon rolls are already in the freezer. Be fine. That'd be great. Joy is right and good with Christmas. But where we're going this morning is there's a tension with joy as we come to Christmas. The tension is pain. The tension is pain. Right. Many of us are coming in today more quickly and easily resonating with pain and sorrow as we move into Christmas. The tension here is something we experience in all of our lives. And for those who come in rejoicing, uh, those who are weeping kind of maybe feel like a subtle threat to my joy. And to those who come in weeping, those who are experiencing joy might feel like salt in the wound. And it can really divide us and drive us apart. And yet, as the family of Christ, we're called, as Romans 12, 15 says, we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And so there's a real tension here. And I live right smack in the middle of it. I think you do too. So our world is replete with examples of pain. I mean, no matter which news app you uh, prefer to pull up, I'm a BBC world guy. You don't have to shout out which one is your favorite. But all you have to do is pull up any app and you see news of pain and sorrow and difficulty. Things like wars and pandemics are all over the headlines. Racial and religious strife, hunger and famine. Young boys and young girls trafficked into slavery of various types. Broken families. Just this weekend, uh, there was a terrible outbreak, historic out outbreak of tornadoes in the southeast. Nearly 100 people have been killed across six states and more than 30 tornadoes. And in our town, we've been mourning the loss of middle school students who have died recently in a tragic car accident. And maybe some of you here knew them, and so you're mourning as you come in today. Maybe you're a teacher, and maybe you knew them, and you're mourning too, or you're at least helping your class, people in your classes mourn in very difficult ways, comes out sideways. Some of you this morning I know are facing very difficult health issues. Even mental health issues, crippling anxiety and the depths of dark depression. I know that there's many here who struggle with just like with that. Um, others are dealing with the acute pain of broken relationships and families, marriages that have ended. Betrayals, estranged relationships with children, even the loss of a child. Or some of you, I think, quite likely are still waiting, waiting for that life partner to come along and the years keep going by and you're still single. 
And so I don't feel like I have to uh, overdo this here, but as the Christmas lights go up, and as you get the invitation to the work Christmas party or go back home for family Christmas, I wonder if many of you listening to my voice right now feel a deep, uh, kind of an empty echo in your heart as you consider the joy of Christmas. So there's a huge tension here. Most of our arguments against God, or, or all, of all of them, I think the one uh, surrounding the problem of human pain and suffering and evil in the world, I think that's the one that I'm most sympathetic to. And there's all sorts of philosophical and logical angles you can take with that one. But all of us, on some level, have an experience, a personal experience, or many, with pain and sorrow that defies explanation and where God doesn't seem to give a why. Where is God when I'm riddled with pain and sorrow? Where is God when my heart is broken? Where is God when I'm in such pain? I think this is a really serious question. It's a serious question this morning, one we should not respond to lightly. And I think it's a holy question. One so profound and weighty that it requires us to far more than just words and propositions and arguments, although I kind of like this. But if, you, uh, if, if, if you've ever been the, on the other side of me, sometimes words aren't always the right thing when someone's in pain. Words fall short to the human heart that is in suffering and sorrow. Words aren't enough. And sometimes we can even do extra damage by throwing words that ignorantly we think will help, but really they just rub salt in the wound. Words aren't enough to the problem of human suffering. I know it. I think you know it. And Jesus knows it. God knows that. It requires personal presence. And God agrees, and that's why, as John 1.14 tells us in the message translation, the word of God became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood, came so close, because even the word of God might not have been enough to touch the human heart in pain. And so the word of God became a person so that he could move close and offer us presence in the midst of our pain. So this incarnation, Christmas, the, the incarnation is God becoming a person. $5 word for Christmas. It's worth celebrating, right? God came here. He came so close, wrapped himself in human flesh so small that he was a human baby. That's crazy. God coming here and becoming like us so that he could be with us, that is amazing. It's right to celebrate Christmas. It's right that there's joy and feasts and celebration and presents and songs and Christmas lights and gathering with family and gifts, all the things. It's right that we would rejoice, but it's also much deeper than that. It's so much deeper than just happy feelings that come and go. This good news of great joy is a little bit deeper. So hang with me for a minute. So as we, um, as we look back at the scriptures, God has been telling us about Christmas for a long time. 
For those who study the Bible, you may be familiar with it. Since the very beginning, the very beginning pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve decided they were going to rebel against God's way and everything went sideways and all creation was subjected to frustration and groaning. And when God had to tell Adam and Eve, so now the consequence is you've brought death and pain and suffering into the world and it won't quickly leave. Since that moment, he breathed words about Christmas. The, un, the one who would come and save us from our sorrow and lift away death. I love it that he, uh, God talks about the seed of a woman. He's looking at Eve and he talks about the seed of a woman. It's interesting, the seed of a woman that you don't normally talk about it that way. It's usually the seed of a man. But he says the seed of the woman is going to come. One day, the fruit of your womb, Eve, and your womb and your womb through the generations, the seed of the woman will produce someone who comes close and who crushes sin and death forever, even though it'll cost him the same. God's been pointing away ever since. Isaiah chapter 53, well, we're gonna read this here in a minute, but before we do, this was, this, uh, this was another prophecy written about 700 years before Jesus came. And it talks about the, the Messiah who would come and suffer and be acquainted with pain and grief to save us. And so I wanna invite you into the Christmas scene for just a second, and then we're gonna read these verses from Isaiah. So if you can, in your mind's eye, move into the place where Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph soon after. And put yourself, maybe pretend in your mind's eye to sit right beside Mary, right beside Mary. And it's fine, you can bring all the things you brought with you this morning, all the fears, all the whatever, all the anger, all the sadness and loneliness. Sit right beside Mary and see with her eyes, as she looks only a few feet away, maybe even closer, as she looks down at her baby, that the angel told her would be the Messiah. And she looks down at him, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a clean, warm manger right in front of him. And she would have known, as, as we've talked before a few weeks ago when Sarah preached, uh, it was very clear Mary knew her scripture. It's very clear. She would have known this passage, one of the most famous in the Old Testament. And she would have known this verse as she looks down at the baby, try to sit there with her, and hear again the words of Isaiah the prophet in chapter 53. 700 years before, speaking about this Messiah. The prophecy says, he was, speaking about what um, Isaiah saw in his vision, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Remember where we're looking with Mary's eyes? And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. You remember the seed of a woman that was supposed to crush death and yet be crushed as well? You remember the uh, point about Mary? That the father of Jesus was not Joseph? So the only seed there was the seed of the woman. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Skipping back down to where we were. 
He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed because we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt upon us or dwelt among us and moved into the neighborhood. So an important question we have to ask ourselves at this point, what is God doing in a manger? What's God doing in a manger? He could have stayed separate from the problem of human suffering. He could have stayed high above and far away. It was actually his right. He didn't bring this stuff in, but he didn't. Because the answer to the problem of human pain and suffering is presence. And so he came close. The very presence of God came close. And staying, instead of staying distant from our pain, he moved in. He moved in and chose to become part of it. He didn't shield himself from it all, but he suffered and walked among us. And indeed, Jesus, as we look at his story through the New Testament, Jesus was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. We know that he dealt with the grief of losing his own father, Joseph, relatively early in his life. We don't know exactly when. We know that even as a young child, he was forced to flee from his hometown because Herod was trying to kill him and went ahead and slaughtered all the other baby boys, two and younger, tried to get him. And his family became refugees to Egypt for years. He lived in obscurity and worked with his hands. He was rejected by many of his own people. So much so that even his brothers and sisters didn't believe him when he was in his own ministry. He had no home, no stable income. He was in constant threat from the religious leaders trying to catch him in his words so they could kill him. And many of his followers deserted him. And then all, right at the end when he needed him most. And then in that moment when he was completely deserted, he stepped forward and set his face towards the cross and took our sin and, and the weight of it on his shoulders so that it would crush him for you and for me. So I wanna invite you into another scene. So sit with Mary just one more time and now move from, instead of seeing Jesus in the manger, move ahead about 33 years. And with Mary's eyes as well, sit with her as she looks up at Jesus. A man now, but this time stripped naked and eyes wide with the pain of crucifixion and she couldn't help him this time there's nothing she could do listen with mary as she hears jesus cry out from the cross my god my father why have you left me can you imagine what that would be like god why have you left me says jesus where is god when i'm in such pain god look at me look at my wife look at my son my daughter my dad my mom, and hear the father say, look at my son, look at my son. And so the next important question is what is God doing, not just in a manger, but on a cross? What is God doing on a cross? He doesn't answer all of the whys, it seems. Why do bad things happen? I'd like some why answers myself to some of mine. But it does seem like he opens the doorway to a place where we could trust a God like that. I, I don't understand. But if God 
not only came into a manger, but hung on a cross for me, if he entered into my world and suffered and died for me, then maybe I could trust a God like that. He didn't have to stay in here. He could have stayed separate. So today, perhaps you need to sit here because the only answer to the problem of your human suffering is presence. You need presence, yes, with others in the body of Christ, with friends. You need presence with you, but you need presence from God with us. And so maybe this morning you need to sit here and open your eyes just enough to see that Jesus himself is with you. He's present with you and he understands. He didn't stay detached from sorrow, but he stepped into it. God is with us in our joy and in our pain. And so this brings us back to joy, right? So this, this joy message is a little bit of a downer maybe. But we bring it in with us. We've got to talk about pain when we talk about joy. But we do need to talk about joy. So that's pain. That's the reality of our sorrow. So joy does flow from here. Because biblically speaking, joy isn't just a temporary feeling that comes and goes with your situation. It's not merely happiness or pleasure. But joy is a deep thing. It's this deep thing that takes up resonance deep in your heart so that even when your situations are painful, you can still have joy that wells up from the inside. As Jesus told the, the woman at the well, if you're familiar with the scriptures, he said, I can offer you living water that will well up within you, a spring of eternal life that'll always be there. That's this, that's joy. Biblical joy is not the opposite of pain, but it is, it is, um, it allows itself to be there, right, with pain. It doesn't, it's not put out by pain because it's rooted down deep in our souls. So what is joy? Joy is vision. Joy is vision. It's zooming out, lifting your eyes so that you can see the full picture because of what God has done for me, because God is with me now, and because of what God says is coming, because of his promises. Then I can stand up with hope and peace and joy now. Uh, Viktor Frankl, he was an Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, also a Holocaust survivor. And a pastor and author, Ted Roberts, writes about him, saying, in his classic book, this is Viktor Frankl's, Man's Search for Meaning, Frankl shares that he was able to keep, um, uh, to keep his mind, that should be his, keep his mind and hope alive by rehearsing the talks he imagined he would give after he was released from imprisonment. In the environment of a Nazi death camp, he discovered a reality. Saturated with trauma, that purpose and meaning were central to his mental health and strength. Or as he expressed it, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Let me say that again. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. In other words, once you have a clear understanding of where you're headed in life, you can effectively deal with deeply traumatizing situations. So what's your why? You don't have to answer out loud. What's your purpose? What's your meaning? What is your reason for living that would help you get through the now? What is your why? Frankel's why was really powerful. Imagining himself uh, 
through the Nazi death camp and even able to give a speech about it in Vienna. And yet, as powerful as it was, it was, on one hand, unsure. In some ways, it was wishful thinking. It was a good one, and it ended up being very powerful. But how much more, those of us who know Jesus and his word, how much more do we have real hope that is anchored in the future that we can see? Biblical hope is the certainty of the thing that is coming. It's not just wishful thinking. We know it's coming, and Jesus himself speaks to the truth of that. How much more we have a compelling vision that can give us strength and joy and hope now. If you're wondering what's that hope, in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, this is looking forward into the future to the second Christmas, the second advent when Jesus comes back and moves back into the neighborhood for good. John, in his vision, says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. The sense here is forever. He's moving back into the neighborhood forever, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And listen to this. Oh, I need to hear this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus. He says, I am making everything new. I gotta imagine the biggest smile on his face as he said. I'm making everything new. And he said, and he turns to John, who sees this vision, and he says, write this down. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Not only do you need this vision, but you're Your churches need this. And for those who come after you in the years and centuries later, that's us. We need this vision to hold us through because joy is rooted in vision and it looks ahead to what's coming. Joy is also rebellion. Let's see if we can get that going here. Maybe you could click that for me. Joy is rebellion. It's crying nevertheless in the face of your pain. It doesn't pretend the pain's not there, but it says, even though I got this diagnosis and it's scaring me half to death, even though my friend just died, even though my marriage is dissolving and I'm spiraling downward, even though I'm suffering, nevertheless, I can and I will choose to hope in God because of what he's done for me, what he's doing now and what's coming. It's a rebellion. It's a wonderful rebellion. Because God is good and the story ends well. As my seminary professor used to say, God is good and the story ends well. Joy is more than just optimism and positive thinking, putting on this fake smile and pretending everything's okay. Or the opposite, it's not uh, just letting your, your, uh, your, your pain have the last word. Joy is rebellion and it's also realism. It's tapping into how things really are. So that when the waves of despair and pain wash over us, and sometimes they wash over us so hard, you can picture our lives like a buoy, you know, an ocean buoy that's always kind of going like this. Even the biggest waves push it under, but it always comes up back on top because it's weighty at the bottom. And in the same way, joy is like a buoy. It always comes back up. It's our spiritual buoyancy. It gives us strength in the midst of the storm. And so that's true. Joy, finally, is also our strength. 
As Nehemiah chapter 8 tells us, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not just the temporal happiness of the Lord, but the joy of the Lord, the certainty of what we know is coming and what God has done for us. That kind of joy is our strength. And as someone has said, and I think it's quite poignant, when the joy goes, the strength goes. And Jesus wants to offer us, it's one of the gifts of his spirit, joy, so that we can have strength. Now, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So as we kind of wrap up here, I want you to see, I hope you see, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can hold together the tension of joy and pain in a way that holds our world together, that it can hold our world together internally in our hearts and give us what we need to move forward with hope and peace and joy even in the midst of our tears and our pain. It's connected intimately with the suffering servant, the man of sorrows who is well acquainted with grief. Hebrews 12, 2 says this. This is fascinating. It was for the joy that lay before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. He saw, and he did it for joy, for the joy he saw at the end. Even Jesus did this. That's how he lived his life. That's how he was able to hang in there. So he's asking us to follow the trail he's already blazed because the far-sighted see better things. And as the band go ahead and can come up, I, I, I need glasses. These actually, thanks to newer technologies versus when I was uh, younger, they don't look too terrible, but I have no idea if there's anyone out there. I, I need, really need glasses. It wasn't until about seventh grade that I got glasses. I probably should have had them much earlier. But uh, I... Um, I had grown so accustomed to holding things really close that I didn't really realize that I needed glasses. I would just hold the book up close, right? I would sit close to the TV. I would sit in the front row of uh, the classroom. I'll never forget the first time I put on my first pair of glasses. It was in Lens Crafters. It's Lens Crafters. Is that even still a thing? I don't know if it is. Lens Crafters. It was in the mall in, uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'll remember, I put them on, and I could see the clock on the wall way over there. I didn't even know there was a clock. <laughs> I could see. So for those of you who have ever uh, moved to glasses or contacts, perhaps you know the feeling. A whole new world opened up to me as I was able to see farther away. And it changed everything. Jesus, Jesus wants to open up our eyes so that we can see, so that we can see clearly and have strength. That's what Paul in Romans 8 says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons nor anything present or in the future or, in the, or powers or anything high or low or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is us, ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the vision. That's the vision. So that with James, chapter one, verse two, 
We can consider it great joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever we experience various trials, because we know that the testing of our faith produces something good. It produces endurance. And endurance can have its full effect so that it might make us mature and complete, lacking nothing. Joy is for you and for me, even in the midst of our tears. And so the invitation this morning is, you, is for you to lift your eyes up and see the God who is present in the midst of your pain and your suffering, the one who is present with you now and the one who's coming back to make all things new. One day, he will wipe your tears from your eyes. One day, and he's with us now. One day, joy will no longer be mixed with pain. So we need to lean into joy and pain together. And as we close, I want us to take a minute or two to just meditate on a few questions. And so this is gonna be a time where the band can play a little bit and we can just have a moment to sit with a question and then one more. And you can just open up your mind to God in prayer. What do you need to lament this morning? Because joy doesn't mean you have to not have pain. What do you need to lament this morning before God? What do you need to tell him and lament? Take just a minute to open your eyes of your heart and ask Jesus, what do you want me to see right now? This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.